We'll be speaking out of the book of Colossians today, as you might have guessed. Uh, we'll be finishing off the, the first chapter uh, with, with the text there and moving into the second chapter today. But when we think about Jesus being at the center of our lives, we also have to consider then, is he at the center of our efforts? And there's many things you can work toward in this life, many things you can do, many different jobs you can have, and sometimes there's great payoff to those efforts, but the fact is we're all working toward something in this life. And there's many noble pursuits, many things we can devote our energy toward, and sometimes it's really worth it, sometimes it's really not. But sometimes our best efforts, even when we're paid to do something, don't quite work out. And uh, you know, one of the funny things for me is to see some of those job fails, kind of you had one job moments. And, and sometimes even in our best efforts, we might be about 50% correct. Uh, this is uh, something I know if I ordered from Amazon for Mason would be the subject of nightmares for him. But so close, so close, efforts didn't quite pan out. Other times we can have all the details down except for one, a very important one, and do a very thorough job. Um, other times, we just don't even try. And if you can read that sign, somebody labeled those bananas as long yellow things. And uh, there's just no effort at all, though it does uh, denote, you probably can't read it, it's a product of Ecuador. So, uh, Carl, I don't know, did they have long yellow things in Ecuador? They, they did, yeah. But sometimes our efforts don't quite pan out. But the thing about Christ-centered efforts, as we'll read today, is that it's not so much about what we can do. It's, it's not our skill level and what we're capable of, but again, what Jesus did for us and what Jesus does through us. And working for the gospel will always, always pay off. We don't always see it in this life and we don't feel it in the moments, but no labor done for the Lord is done in vain. And there's nothing more important than working for him. So as we read today, we're just going to start uh, by finishing out the first chapter. We'll read the rest later, but join with me as we read uh, verse 24 through 29 in chapter 1. Now I rejoice in what I am suffering for you, and I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions, for the sake of his body, which is the church. I have become its servant by the commission God gave me to present to you the word of God in its fullness, the mystery that has been kept hidden for ages and generations, but is now disclosed to the Lord's people. To them, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. He is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. Now, there's three overarching points we're going to have in the text today. Uh, and this is unintentional, uh, but there's the three Ps today. I didn't realize this until late into Friday that there's three Ps going on. But when we consider the Christ-centered efforts we can give, we know that it's surrounding presenting God's word in its fullness, proclaiming Christ to every person, and what we'll read later is protecting against false teaching. 
But in verses 24 through 27, we see this concept, this principle that Christ-centered efforts means presenting God's word in its fullness. And particularly in uh, verse 24, we see this principle that sharing the gospel is always going to cost you something. There may be different levels of what it may cost you, but it will always be worth it. Now we see here Paul is talking about the concept of suffering or sacrifice. And that's not a topic we love to talk about, but it's a reality in the Christian life. And you've heard me say it before, and you see it many times in the scriptures, many different ways, that the Christian life is not always easy. It's at least not guaranteed to be easy. And there's always some sort of sacrifice that needs to be given for the gospel to advance. When we consider our Christ-centered efforts, it will cost you something. It might be your time. It might be your finances. It could be giving up on whatever self-centered pursuits you may have. It may come at a cost to your status or your reputation among your peers. It could come at the cost of some sort of persecution against you. It may even come to the point of death that all the apostles, including Paul, experienced as they shared the gospel to a needy world. This is something, though, we often tend to avoid. We don't like the concept of suffering and sacrifice. But here we see something interesting from the Apostle Paul, that he embraced the suffering and even rejoiced in the suffering that was coming his way. Now, he knew that because of his unique ministry, because what God had called him to do, there would come to him some afflictions that other people may not experience. And in this world, there's always someone who suffers more than you. All of us suffer in some ways, and we sacrifice on different levels. But when we consider what Paul went through, not many can relate to what he went through in his suffering. In the book of 2 Corinthians, he kind of spells out everything he went through as he suffered at the cost of sharing the gospel to a needy world. And this is in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And this is, again, not him bragging about what he's done. He's bragging, really, about Christ who brought him through all this. He says, I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and have been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one, which, by the way, was their calculated way of of harming someone to the point nearest death without actually killing him. Five times he experienced that. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from the Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled. I have, been gone. I have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. And besides everything else, I face the daily pressure of my concern for all the churches. 
I don't know anyone that can compare to that kind of suffering for doing what is so good. And Paul lists all of this out, and he says, even though it costs me that much, it's worth it. And Paul kept giving and giving and giving to the point of death. I think that's something we have to wrap our minds around with Christ-centered efforts, is that it may lead us to a place of being uncomfortable, of being in harm, of giving much for Jesus. But it will always, always be worth it. Now we have to unpack this statement that he says here, because it could lead you to, to believing something he's not communicating, is that he wants to fill up in his flesh what is still lacking in, regards to, in regard to Christ's afflictions. Now what he is not saying is that Jesus and his suffering on the cross could be added to, that there's something lacking in that. And it's very clear, as we'll be remembering and celebrating later, that the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross was completely sufficient. There's nothing we could do to add to that, to add any merit to what happened. But what the apostle is saying is that there's inevitable suffering of some kind for those who share the gospel to an unbelieving world. Some kind of suffering may or will come your way. And even though Jesus did all the suffering necessary for our sin, it does not mean there's no suffering left for those who may follow him. And Jesus himself said, the world hated me and will also hate those who follow me. But Christ-centered efforts means working for the kingdom, presenting God's word in its fullness, even if it comes at a cost to you. Because if you know Jesus, you know the reward. And you'll stop at nothing to share that reward with the world and we read on in verse 25 that, that Paul became the servant. And he's talking now about being a servant to the church. He's a servant to the gospel and now a servant to the church by the commission God gave him to present the word of God in its fullness. And what does it mean to present the word of God in its fullness? It, it doesn't mean that you have to preach the whole Bible, all 66 books, every single word to some, what it means is that the word of God, here talking about the gospel, or the saving message of Jesus, should be spoken entirely to people. But it also means that for it to be spoken in its fullness means that it's, it's, it's living up to its intended purpose, that the word of God is designed to be shared it's why it's here that, that Jesus who came on the cross to save people should not be a secret, but it should be shared openly. And that's what brings it to its intended purpose. The word of God is made full when his saving plan is shared with people, the people who need to hear it. Now, this is not our grand idea. This is God's commission given to all of us. And, and Paul speaks about the commission given to him. And there's kind of a cool point in here when you think about this, what, what the word commission means. And commission isn't something that was impulsive by God, where he saw this man then named Saul walking to Damascus, and he thought in the moment, hey, this guy here, he looks pretty good. Maybe I'll have him be an apostle of the church and bring the gospel to the Gentiles. But commission actually means an appointment, a purpose, 
before you're even born. And so what Paul is saying that he was created to share this message with the Gentiles. Now consider that for a moment and the trajectory of his life. For a long time, Paul, then Saul, was an enemy of the church. There were zero redeeming qualities about him. And many Christians suffered at his hands. But now he's saying he was born to do this. What he's really showing is he's putting his own, uh, his own scripture into practice in his life, that in Christ we're made into new creation, that the old is gone and the new has come, that no amount of mistakes, no amount of wandering from God can spare you from his purposes for you. That if you are a Christian today, regardless of your past, regardless of what you've gone through, your past doesn't determine your future. And there's redemption for every person. Paul speaks of new beginnings to these Gentile believers because he knows firsthand what that means. And that's something for you to take personally, but also for you to think of other believers as well. We cannot discount any believer for any mistake they've made. But Paul was given a special task, a commission by God, to share this gospel of hope with all people, but especially with the Gentiles, with whom he could probably identify with, because the Gentiles were the ones who were seen as unfit, who were seen as evil, and were seen as not deserving of the gospel of Christ. Now we read about this mystery in verses 26 and 27 that had been hidden for these ages and generations that is now being revealed. Well, it's not a mystery because it, he tells us that mystery is Jesus. And don't think of mystery in this case as like a Sherlock Holmes thing or a, a murder mystery, but it's more of a secret. And in this context, what he's saying is for generations, the Old Testament, the prophets told us of this coming Messiah who would redeem people, who would save sinners, and build a new Israel that is it's built up of people, built up of the church. And now, because of what Jesus had done, that this understanding came with the death and resurrection of him. The mystery has been revealed. The church, in a sense, was the secret. And now the church understands the secret. And the first secret is that Jesus came for everyone, that's the mystery of this all, including the Gentiles, the, quote, worst of the worst. Jesus came for sinners. He came for all sinners. And it's a reminder to never discredit anyone from the gospel. But the second secret is that not only Jesus came, but now he lives, and he lives in us. And that's verse 27, that Christ is in you, and he is the hope of glory. That only Jesus can make your life full. And that's a topic we'll talk about more next week in this sermon. But the, the idea is that we are not special. No one person is special. But Jesus is. And he alone is our hope for glory. Now that alone, that realization should move you. That's profound. That's a mystery for ages that's been revealed in Christ and it should move us to share that same mystery, that same secret with others. That as we sang this morning, the worth is not in us or in what we do or what we have, but only Jesus is worthy.
Only Jesus is our hope. We think about our Christ-centered efforts that, that leads us into the next point, which is that we are to be proclaiming Christ, proclaiming Jesus to every person. That he is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. Now, if this verse looks familiar to you, it's because we, we talked about it a lot in October. This was the uh, theme verse for the missions conference in 2020. But what we read is that it's intended for every Christian to grow to full maturity in Jesus. That sharing Jesus is not a hit-and-run activity, but there's this relationship building that happens where we teach and we admonish, admonish everyone with wisdom that we all may grow fully mature in him. And two is that they may understand it's wrong, but they don't realize the consequences. And so someone needs to tell them. And that's the job we have with one another, is holding each other accountable through admonishment. And as, as I may correct you, I would hope that you would correct me. And we have that relationship with one another. But the key here is that admonishment or correction should be done in a loving way. And that's how we so often fail, is that we often sting each other and we persecute each other for doing wrong or thinking wrong. But spitting venom like a snake never saved anyone from the serpent. We need to always share truth with grace and correct in a loving way. But on the proactive side of that is teaching. And that's really, like we talked about last week with the kids, is teaching them everything God had commanded us. Well, it's not just for kids, it's for all ages. We should always be open to learning and know that we have something to teach each other. That's, that's the, the teachings and the wisdom of Christ. But here Paul lays out a hefty goal, to present every person, every believer, fully mature in Christ. And the method is to admonish and teach with all wisdom. The price? Well, probably something of yourself. Probably much of yourself. That there will be some sort of sacrifice or maybe suffering in that. And that's the tough pill to swallow. And that's why we read verse 29. That to this end, to that goal, in other words, we strenuously contend with all energy that Christ has so powerfully worked inside of us. Evangelism, discipleship, sharing Christ, proclaiming Christ, they're not easy tasks. So we should always rely on the strength that only Jesus can give us. Now the words strenuously contend are, are interesting here. Uh, it could also mean to labor. But really what it means is that there's this tireless exertion, that you, that you work into the point of growing weary or tired, or in the athletic connotation, that, that you give everything you have on the race so you collapse at the finish line. There's not one more breath. There's not one more bead of sweat. And that's the way we should chase after the work of Christ. But we can't do it by ourselves. And we certainly can't go at it alone. But we contend with all the energy that Christ so powerfully works in us. As we empty ourselves, Jesus fills us back up to do his work. It's not about us. 
It's about what he did and what he can do through us. And the last part, uh, as we read the first part of, of chapter 2, rather, verses 1 through 5, really tells us that there's a protection we need to have against false teaching. And this is really Paul getting into the purpose of why he's writing the letter to this church. And part of working for Christ is standing against the things that contend him. And Paul knew that this church was hearing many contending thoughts and ideas about Jesus, that they did, as he recognized, had a true faith, that there was fruit, that they heard and understood the gospel, that they were sheep in the flock of Jesus, but where there are sheep, there are wolves. And the wolves come in these false teachers with many fine-sounding arguments, as we believe. So let's read those five verses in uh, Colossians 2, verses 1 through 5. I want you to know how hard I am contending for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not met me personally. My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and unified, united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ. In whom, all, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this that, so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit, and to delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. Now we're just going to really hit the kind of upper-level points to all of this. But the first thing we see is that if you want to protect against false teaching, you need to promote unity among believers. Now, this is one key way to distinguish true teachings from false teachings, by the way, is just look at the effect it has on its believers. The message of Christ always unifies the believers. Jesus came to break down barriers. There are no such thing as special or privileged or accomplished people that would put one over another in the, in the kingdom. There are no distinctives. In Christ, we are one. And what gives us value is not who we are or what we've done, but Jesus in us. And no one person gets more Jesus than the other. We are all equal before the cross and we become unified in him when Jesus is at the center. That's the teachings of Christ, and that's what brings us to unity. But false teachings work in a different way. And in, in many different arguments, they come to the same conclusions that there's this special knowledge you can know that will set you apart from others, that there's some sort of self-advancement that you can, can kind of level you up in some ways, and you can compare yourself against others. Or you might find some sort of superiority of, over others, that you're morally superior, that you're intellectually superior, or that you're spiritually superior. When you preach the message of unity and when you encourage or promote unity among believers, it will almost always shake the foundations of any false teaching. Because false teachings seek to divide people, where Christ only Unites. And we see this personal note from Paul that he wants this church to know how hard he's fighting for them. That he hasn't even met them, but he wants them to be encouraged in faith and united 
and love. Because he knows that will weather them through the storms of false teaching that they're hearing. Unity is absolutely essential to the health of any church and its witness. And the church is being divided. If it's being divided, it's not by the teachings of Christ. It's by the teachings of the world. And it's the strategy of Satan to divide the church. So the first step of protecting against false teaching is promoting unity among believers around Jesus. And second, kind of flows right out of that, it's the title of our series, that if you want to know how to protect against false teaching, keep Jesus at the center of everything you're doing. And here, we get this idea that there's this, the full riches of understanding in Jesus. If we know the mystery, namely Christ. If you want to know more wisdom, if you want to have more wisdom and knowledge, if you want to keep growing in it, then do that. But don't keep searching for it if you're a Christian. You found the source of all wisdom, knowledge, and understanding. It's Jesus. So keep him at the center. And come back to the word of God and know, what does it say? What are the teachings and the example of Christ and what are the principles we can draw? Because there are many fine-sounding arguments in this world, as he says, that, that they're very deceptive, that they're wolves in sheep clothing, that they look good and innocent, but, but these teachers are destructive. Always come back to the word of God. And typically we see a small compromise where you just may ignore something from God's word because you feel like it doesn't apply in this situation or you just simply don't like it. And that leads you down the road to accepting false teaching. Keep Jesus at the center. And lastly, as we read in verse 5, that we should stay connected with other believers. And Paul has this other personal moment where he says, I feel spiritually connected to you even though I've never met you. How is that possible? Because they all kept Jesus at the center of their lives, and it's the same connection we have with one another. Even though Paul was thousands of miles away in jail, there's a connection to them, and he could not wait to see them and see how Jesus was changing their lives. Now, for an embattled church, this probably meant a lot to them, to know that the apostle Paul loves us, and is praying for us, and can't wait to see us, and how Jesus is working in our lives. It offered for them a sense of accountability. And it's the same principles to us, that if you want to stay strong in the faith, if you want to stand against false teachings, stay connected with other believers. It's a reason it's one of our core tenets in our, in our revised mission that we connect with others. And we know that we're coming out of a season that it's been difficult in many ways to do that. And there are some who will have fallen out of fellowship, who no longer see the value of it, and they're going at this thing alone. They are in danger of being swept up by false teachings because we offer accountability and encouragement, teaching and admonishment, support and prayer for one another. Stay connected. As we look at this, there's really three overarching points I'd love you to, to walk away with when it comes to, to uh, applications. And the first is don't get distracted in your efforts. Okay? As we talked about, there's a lot of things you can give your, your efforts towards. There's a lot of things you can work for in this life. 
And there's a lot of things that are coming at you from different angle, angles today. But keep Jesus at the center of all you do. Keep him at the center of all the work you do as well. If you're getting distracted by things in this life that are not centered on Jesus, turn it off. Silence them. Maybe it's the news, maybe it's social media, whatever it is. You don't need it. Don't get distracted in your efforts. And don't get discouraged when it's difficult, because it will be. And if it's difficult, it may mean you're doing it right. It's not always going to be easy. Ministry is hard work. And so if you work for the gospel, keep moving forward. Don't give up when you feel defeated. Rely on the strength of Jesus. Giving up is exactly what Satan wants you to do. And he uses discouragement in a lot of different ways. We've all felt it when you do the ministry. What may look like failure now, you may not understand the importance and the impact it has on eternity for someone. Rely on Jesus and never ever give up on the work you do for him. We've talked a lot about uh, our work for Jesus today, which is important. It's a high task, something that God has called each and every one of us to do, but that's not the most important work that's happened on this earth. It already happened. It's, it's what Jesus did on the cross. And we know that his work is sufficient for all things that his sacrifice was important once and for all. As we move into the time of communion, I just want to read for you about that work in the book of Hebrews chapter 10. That this work was sufficient once and for all. And this really contrasts the work of people to the work of Christ. This is Hebrews chapter 10, verses 11 through 14. That day after day, every priest stands and performs his religious duties, Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which never take away sins. But when this priest, meaning Jesus, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. And since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. That's the work Jesus did. That he came, he, he conquered death for us. He ascended to heaven and he is seated at the right hand of God. And what that means, when you're seated in a place of royalty, it means the work is completed. Now he's just waiting for the right time to come back and make the enemy his footstool. When we celebrate communion, that's what we remember, is the work that Jesus did on the cross. And often we get so busy and so swept up with all the worries and all the distractions of life, we're prone to forget what Jesus did. And that's why he ordained for the church communion, that it's a time specifically to remember his sacrifice. It's important for you to remember today. We're going to have a moment here, very shortly, to, to self-reflect, to think about ourselves and our lives, and the many ways that we've fallen short and how God has stayed faithful through that. But know this, no matter where you're at or no matter where you've been, God doesn't give up on you. If he did what he did, if he did that work on the cross, which costs him everything, he didn't give up on you then. 
He certainly won't give up on you now. He's faithful to you no matter how far you've wandered or how badly you've failed. All we have to do is just acknowledge that sin to him, to confess him as Lord, and accept the work he's done on the cross.